Father, as we are uh, once again here and in your, in your space, a space specifically designated for us to meet you, Lord, we've been, we take an opportunity to, to carve out of our, our time and our journey um, a, a location in time and space here to hear from you. And we have, we have sung and lifted up our praises and lifted up our prayers and, and, and joined in observing uh, the table that Jesus gave us as a, a memorial. And now we, we turn our attention to your word. May these written words on a page show us the living word, Jesus Christ. As we look at what has happened in salvation history, may we be reminded of what happens today. And may we be transformed into His likeness, conformed and, and renewed as we've sung. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're, we're in the middle of a series called Big Ideas, and we're working our way through the Bible, um, just kind of hitting some of the dominant ideas that move the Scriptures. And, and the idea is, at the end of this, to have kind of a, a, a set of values that you can, you can look at any passage of Scripture and ask, how does this fit with the way that the biblical authors thought? Now, the, the Bible is an incredibly uh, stretched out composition. It's not really, it's not, um, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I had it kind of in my mind that just like Peter and Paul and Moses and, and everybody just kind of sat around a table and wrote this thing. Um, and, and in reality, they're separated by thousands of years. This is a book um, drawing from sources of multiple languages over the course of several thousand years, and yet it is unified um, in uh, an idea that we call salvation history. And the idea of salvation history is that God is at work in the affairs of man, manifesting himself, revealing himself, instructing us, guiding us, warning us, and his purpose in doing this is to bring us to himself. And so in the last three weeks, we've, we've talked about God as the creator and sovereign and how everything that he creates he creates for a purpose. And, and in the moment that you are in, God created you to, to handle that. And then we, we talked about sin and how sin is the twisting of something that is good um, to do something that is against God's will. And last week, uh, we, we talked about fathers and family trees and faith and how Abraham believed that God would do something with his brokenness. That faith was not being good enough for God, but just being honest that in, in our doubts and our fears, when God gives us instructions, we act in our brokenness. We don't have to be perfect, we just have to be faithful. Well, today we want to look at Genesis chapter 29, um, and we want to get into uh, another issue. We're kind of alternating back and forth between good and bad ideas. Um, and so we have God as a sovereign good idea, sin as a bad idea, um, and then uh, faith as a good idea. And, and this morning we want to talk about um, division and rivalry. Genesis chapter 29, I, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, you can read the story, um, but uh, basically Abraham has a son named Yitzhak or Isaac. Um, Isaac marries uh, a girl named Rachel or Rachel. Um, which means uh, my little lamb, which I just love. Um, and uh, it's a great name. Didn't name my daughter that. My daughter is named Ariel, which, or Ariel, which means, um, in Hebrew it's Ariel, 
Um, but it means the lion of God. I figured I'd just punch her husband in the face with her name right off the bat. Um, uh, and so, so we, you know, and, and uh, so Yitzhak, Isaac, he marries Rachel, and, and then they have uh, uh, Rebecca, and then they have two children, or they have, a, uh, they have two sons. Um, he marries Rebecca. Isaac and Rebecca have two sons. Um, one's name is Esau, uh, which means the red guy. Great name. Um, and, uh, and then his brother, his younger brother, Yaakov, the heel grabber, the deceiver, the liar. That, what a great name. Um, and, and the reason he's named that is when he's born, Esau comes first. And the scriptures describe him as hairy. Um, and the word means, and his name means red. So um, uh, he had to have been uh, an exciting orangutan-looking baby. And, um, but his, his brother, Yaakov, or Jacob, as he is being born, they're twins, and as Esau is being born, Jacob in, reaches out and grabs his heel. And so they call him Yaakov, Jacob, the, the heel grabber, the deceiver. Um, and they grow up, um, and inevitably they have a rivalry between the two of them. Esau is favored by his father, um, Isaac, um, because Esau is a man's man. He's out in the field. He's hunting. He's killing things. <laughs> you know, he is that. Uh, Jacob is a, a mama's boy. He stays home. Um, he kind of takes care of things I- at home. Um, and uh, there's a little bit of a rivalry between them. I'm not going to get into the whole thing. But basically, Jacob, being the deceiver, he steals his brother's um, rights. Uh, and, uh, and Esau gets understandably upset, threatens to kill him. Uh, their mother says, Jacob, probably a good idea for you to leave. Jacob packs up, heads out, doesn't take a sleeping bag, doesn't take a pillow, winds up sleeping on rocks, uh, sees a vision of God. God says to him, Jacob, I'm going to do something with you. And Jacob goes, well, I don't know how to tell you this, but my name means heel grabber, deceiver. I'm not the best choice. Um, but God has something in mind for him. He journeys up to his, his uh, family's homeland where his his grandfather abram came from which is in northeastern syria uh, what is today kurdistan northeastern syria northwest iraq Um, and there he goes to a city haran which was founded by one of his great uncles he runs into his uncle well actually his uncle slash cousin it gets really confusing uh laban because isaac marries his first cousin once removed and so her brother anyway um Laban is her brother. It's his mother's brother, but also his father's cousin. Um, and uh, yeah, it was legal back then. Don't ask. Um, and he has two daughters, um, Rachel and Leah. Uh, they are described in the Bible in such way um, that uh, basically uh, Rachel is the pretty one. Leah is the older one. Uh, Laban needs to get the older one married first. Tricks Jacob. I don't have an explanation for that one into marrying uh, the wrong sister, and Jacob doesn't figure it out till the next day. Uh, and I don't know. Uh, and he can't even blame it on being Irish. Uh, I don't know. Uh, just being too drunk at the party to not notice. Uh, but, but anyway, so then he works seven years to marry Leah. He works seven more years to marry uh, Rachel. Um, And then proceeds to have children with not only those two women, but also their two female servants, uh, whose job is to raise children uh, to uh, Jacob. He winds up having a lot of children. uh, Genesis chapter 29 and verse 30. um, uh, Verse 31 
When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, Jacob did not like Leah. He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. By the way, in this passage, it's really easy to figure out what a Hebrew word means. Because after they name the kid, she'll explain what it means. So Reuben means my affliction. All right? She conceived again and bore and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. I don't know how hated she was. She just had two kids. Um, but uh, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son, and she shall call his name Simeon. All right? Simeon means heard. It's a pun on the word um, God hears. And she again conceived and bore a son. She said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. And therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son. And this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Yehuda or Judah. And then she ceased bearing. So she has four, four kids. I'm not going to get into all the details, but Rachel notices that Leah's having four kids. She's upset about it, so she sends her servant into Jacob. He then has some kids with her servant. Then, um, then Rachel gets mad, or Leah gets mad because now Jacob is having kids with Rachel's servant. So then she sends her servant in, and he has kids with her. And then her oldest son, are you following this? Uh, Reuben then gets mad that his mother stopped having kids. He goes out into the field and finds some kind of herb that she then takes, then she starts having kids again. Oh boy. This is a, there's a Rich Mullins song that just, starts, um, that just starts with the line, now Jacob had four women and a whole house full of kids. All right? And that's, that is the description of his life. Uh, he winds up having a lot of children. Uh, and Rachel, uh, it goes on and on and on and on and on. But then... Finally, um, after all of this that is happening, all right, and, and there, there's conversations and there's stuff going on and, and there's just all kinds of stuff that, that goes on in their lives. Um, finally, uh, God gets a hold of Jacob. Um, and <sighs> Jacob is, um, uh, 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 he's, he's troubled. And finally, God teaches him um, forgiveness. I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but he encounters his brother Esau. Esau has forgiven him, um, and God appears to him, starts speaking to him. There's a lot of interesting things that happen here. Um, and then Jacob has, uh, finally, God opens Rachel's womb, and Jacob has two children by her. Now, this is both amazing and terrible. Her first son is named Joseph, and you probably know him from Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, or uh, one of the, the DreamWorks movies. Um, you know, he, he appears in those. Um, and then she conceives again. And in childbirth, um, the, it's a ter- really difficult childbirth, and she wants to name her son uh, the son of affliction, or the son of suffering, because she is going to die. And Joseph, Jacob instead names this son uh, Benjamin, all right, my, the son of my right hand, the son of my strength. Then his wife dies, and he buries his wife. Um, he buries Rachel uh, in a tomb on the road on the way to Bethlehem. All right? This is why Bethlehem is so important in the rest of the Bible. It's why Jesus is born in Bethlehem. It's why David is from Bethlehem, because Jacob buries his favored wife, Rachel, in Bethlehem. 
Joseph, you are probably familiar with the Technicolor Dreamcoat. All right, so let's just real quickly summarize this. I'm just going to tell you right up front. You know how you see all these pictures of Joseph and he's wearing a robe and it's multicolored and that's what Joseph wears? Wrong. Wrong. That's not. They, they translated it that way in Greek in the first century AD. It's wrong. That's not what the word means. The robe that he had had, and this is going to really mess up your imagination, long sleeves. That's what the word means. It means that Jacob was given a special robe that had long sleeves. You say, why did Jacob get a special robe with long sleeves? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Jacob gets a robe with special robe with long sleeves. That's what you gave to children that you didn't want to do work because the sleeves were in the way. All right? Um, and so J Joseph is the favored son and this is a little weird because those robes are usually given to daughters. I'm just going to leave that there. I'm not just going to walk away. Um, but anyway, Jacob, is, Jacob gives Joseph this special robe. And understandably, his brothers hate him for it. Well, we all know the story of Joseph. We've all seen it once or twice, except for the robe being wrong. His brothers get mad at him because he has dreams. They send him to Egypt, he gets sold into slavery, he gets sent to Egypt. They actually want to kill him, and then Reuben actually manipulates the situation and manages to get him sold um, to, uh, to a group of slave traders. Goes to Egypt, he suffers all that stuff, and then eventually he saves his brothers. If you haven't seen the story, just you know, Google it. It'll, it's a pretty straightforward story. But most of us don't know the story of his other brothers. In fact, most of us probably couldn't name all of his brothers. I'm not sure I could, and I do this for a living. All right, I know one of them's named Dan, Zebulun, Issachar, Levi. All right, but there, there are the four oldest are the important ones: Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Reuben's the oldest, so he should be the head of the family. The problem is that when Reuben got to a certain age, I'm not going to get into the details of it, but remember those servant girls that Jacob had children with? Well, Reuben found one of them attractive and decided to marry her, except not marry her. And God rejected Reuben for his act. Well, they had a sister, Dinah. Um, Dinah was apparently a very attractive young lady, um, and one of the princes, the prince of Shechem, in the land of Canaan, thought that she was pretty attractive, decided he wanted to marry her, but like Reuben, he decided not to want to marry her, just to, you know, do everything else. Then he went to his father and said, well, you know, I'm in love with your daughter, can I marry her? And Jacob was willing to negotiate the contract. Simeon and Levi were understandably upset, like older brothers are. However, they go a little further than most of your older brothers might have. They tell this prince that he can marry them. The only condition is, in order to marry, this, marry Dinah, the whole city has to be circumcised. And the prince goes, well, it sounds like a good deal. I really want to marry her. So they circumcise all the men of the city. While they're laying on the ground recuperating, Simeon and Levi go into the city and slaughter them. So God rejects Simeon and Levi, which means that the top son's name is Judah. 
The story of Israel in the Old Testament can be traced to the rivalry between Judah and Joseph. Now, Judah and Joseph, they don't see eye to eye on everything. Judah's much older. Judah is probably, probably about 30 years older than Joseph. Um, now, you say that's a lot. Remember, the guy's got 13 kids, okay? Uh, Judah, in fact, Judah has, has been married and had children um, before Joseph is taken to, to Egypt. So Judah's um, pretty old. Uh, and Judah is the one that's going to be in charge of the household. But he's not the favorite son. Joseph is the favorite son. Joseph's the one with the long sleeves. Joseph's the one who goes to Egypt. Joseph goes to Egypt. He marries an Egyptian prince, uh, uh, the daughter of a priest. Um, he actually gets an Egyptian name, which in and of itself is very interesting, Zaphnath Paneah. And that just rolls off the tongue, just like Joseph, right? Um, Zaphnath Paneah. Um, he becomes Egyptian in so many ways that years later when his brothers meet him, they don't recognize him. Joseph has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Most people pronounce it Ephraim, it's, it's Ephraim. Um, when Jacob is reunited with his children, reunited with Joseph, in his old age, Joseph brings his two children to him, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he, sa- he asks his father to bless him. And you go, where is this all going? Just trust me, it'll make sense in a minute. Jacob takes his right hand, the hand of blessing. Remember, he saw, Nate called his son Benjamin, son of my right hand. It's the hand of blessing. Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Jacob's laying in bed, he's old. And Jacob goes like this with his hands. And he goes to put his right hand on Ephraim, the younger son. And Joseph goes, no, 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 dad, no, 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 dad. He's like, this one is the older one. Manasseh is the older one. And Joseph, Jacob says, I know what I'm doing. And he puts his hands and he blesses Ephraim. Now let me tell you a little bit about Israel's history. If you read uh, the book of Joshua, guess what tribe, or guess who the ancestor of Joshua was? Ephraim. If you read the book of First and Second Kings and you read the story of David establishing the kingdom of Israel and then his son Solomon rules and then Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam becomes king and under Rehoboam there's a division in the kingdom and the northern tribes go off and they follow a guy named Jeroboam and the southern tribes stay with Rehoboam and Jeroboam establishes a northern kingdom. He dies. His son rules for a short time. He dies. There's a whole civil war. And then a guy named Omri establishes a dynasty, what's called the Omri dynasty um, in the, the mid-9th century BC. I know you guys care about those details. He establishes a capital called Samaria. Guess where Samaria is? Ephraim. It's in the lands of Ephraim. 
when the prophet Elijah and, and the prophets Elijah and Elisha preach against idolatry in the people of Israel, and I could spend hours and hours and hours on them because they're part of my doctoral dissertation, but we won't get into that. Um, when they are preaching, guess what group of people they're preaching to? The descendants of Ephraim. Now on the other hand, if you read the book of Judges, you will discover that other than the first chapter of the book of Judges and one mention in the story of Samuel, Judah is completely uninvolved. They are watching from their hilltops while the rest of Israel gets destroyed by all of the people that come in through Judges. If you read the book of 1 Samuel, you will find in that chapter the anointing of David, the first official king of Israel, and David is a descendant of Judah. All the kings that rule the southern kingdom, the ones who control the temple in Jerusalem, the ones who are the ones who stay faithful to God. You read through the Bible, if you're familiar, you may not know these names if you're not familiar, but if you are, you've heard these names. The King Hezekiah, King Uzziah, King Joash, King Josiah, all of them are descendants of David, who is a descendant of Judah. Israel divides into two groups. And in the Bible, there is this renegade troublemaker group. They are all descended from Ephraim. They are all descended from Joseph. They are all separated from what is, what is the true faith. And then there is Judah and David and ultimately Jesus. All through the scriptures, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Israelite world is divided between these two families. It defines the story of Israel. You can point anytime, read through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and anytime there is somebody causing trouble among the people of Israel, I can almost guarantee you that you will discover they are descended from the tribe of Ephraim. Always. There are a couple of anomalies, but for the most part, that's where they come from. You say, what is the point of this whole thing? Well, I could go a lot of different directions, but I just want to explain something to you. Don't be surprised that the world divides into two camps. Those who strive for faithfulness, those who strive for godliness, and those who strive for their own glory. Don't be surprised that the world is often divided between true worship and idolatry. Don't be surprised that they come from the same root. They're both descendants of Jacob, why the division? Why the problem? Now here's kind of the interesting situation. You remember the passage we read in Zechariah chapter 10 at the beginning of the message? Did you happen to notice the reference to Judah and Joseph? If you have your Bible with you, turn back to, to turn to Zechariah 10. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. 
So if you get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you go backwards, you'll hit the Italian prophet Malachi, and then you'll hit um, Zechariah. His name is Malachi, but that's how I remember his name. Malachi. He makes a good red sauce. Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 8. This is God speaking about what he will do. He says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back. What's the next line? Because I have compassion on them. Think about this for just a second. I have a very simple big idea this morning. Think about this for just a second. The entire history of Israel is the story of the rivalry of the house of Joseph, Ephraim, and the house of Judah and David. And God says, but when it comes down to it, I will save the house of Joseph because I have compassion on them. They shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. In 722 BC, the Assyrian armies came and raised Samaria to the ground. They destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and Assyria had a very interesting approach to dominating people. Their solution to local problems was to not have locals. It's kind of an interesting approach. What they would do is after they conquered you, they would pack up all of your men and they would send them somewhere else. Then they would bring men from somewhere else to your land and have them marry your women. Thereby eliminating a group of people. We refer to Israel now as the ten lost tribes. No one knows where they went. Nowhere, no one knows where they, they were transported to. We don't know what happened to them. You can't trace the genealogy of a single member of anything that happened back then. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel ceased to exist and has never, ever existed since. They were condemned for their idolatry, their apostasy, their disobedience. God warned them and warned them and warned them again and again. The book of Jonah, by the way, is a sermon against them. If God would forgive the kingdom of Nineveh, the Assyrians, and give them grace, why wouldn't he give grace to the people of Israel? But they refused to listen, and so they were destroyed. But God says in Zechariah 10, I still know who they are. I still have compassion on them. I will save them. I will redeem them. It will be as if I have never rejected them. The divisions of this world do not reflect the realities of God's grace. If you embrace this principle, you will find that it will solve a lot of the issues we have in our modern society. 
The divisions of this world do not define the parameters or the boundaries of God's grace. Eh, they're too old to understand. Eh, he's too pagan to ever listen. Eh, their culture, their skin color, their whatever, it's beyond God's saving. The divisions of this world do not define the boundaries of God's grace. God can go beyond the destruction of a kingdom, beyond the complete demolition of a society, and still save, still redeem, still renew. Do you know that in this world, kingdoms rise and fall? I'm about to say something that's going to annoy some of you. God did not single out America as an eternal kingdom. I get that the founding fathers, they, were, they loved God. They, they did extraordinary things. The U.S. Constitution may be the greatest non-biblical document ever written. But God did not look down the annals of time and say, and then one day I will establish this kingdom in this place that no one knows about in North America and it will be my shining light. It will be a city set on a hill. Now the Puritans believe that. The Bible doesn't say that, it, that America was going to be that. Kingdoms of men rise and fall. It may very well be that America is here when Christ returns to rule and reign, but it may be that it is not. It may be that the trend we see in our culture toward chaos will continue and continue until our society crumbles and falls. You say, well, that's just, you know, like Kevin Costner postman level speculation. That's a lost movie from the 90s. Um, everybody's like, postman, Kevin Costner? Who is Kevin Costner? Um, it may be that our society crumbles and falls. The Franks thought that they were the kingdom of God. The Holy Roman Empire thought it was the kingdom of God. Germany thought that they were the kingdom of God. Britain thought that they were the kingdom of God. Haile Selassie thought that his kingdom was the kingdom of God. The Taliban believes that they are the kingdom of God. The reality is the divisions of this world do not define the grace of God. Joseph and Judah did not define what God was going to do. Well, God chose Judah. God rejected Joseph. God rejected Ephraim. So, so we've, got to, we've got to be a part of God's group. God's grace can go anywhere and save anybody and transform anyone. Now that's good news for you and me. Because we're part of that anyone. But it's also good news for a whole lot of people. 
I had somebody say one time to me in a pastor's group, I'm going to end with this illustration, I promise, um, said to me, well, he says, I'm not, he said, the, the Muslims are out to get us. There's no reason to preach to them. Now, this was at the height of September 11th, the paranoia, everybody losing their minds over it. And I'm not going to get into all the issues of Islam, but I just want to remind you of this one thing. Christianity emerged in the midst of the most pagan kingdom that had ever dominated the Mediterranean world, the Greco-Roman world. Rome, who credited themselves as being civilized, and they were the creme de la creme, and aren't we great, and we bring civilization to the whole world, routinely massacred people. Routinely put human beings in arenas to be torn apart by animals. Routinely advocated every kind of sexual deviancy you could possibly imagine. Their houses actually had rooms in them called vomitoriums where when you partied too hard, you could go and throw up so you could come back and party some more. And people who participated in that society, exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, were transformed in ways that they could never imagine into people that they never thought that they would become and they became the messages, messengers of grace and peace that operated under the surface of society for centuries until Rome fell. And when Rome fell, guess what kept going? The cause of Jesus Christ. Don't let the divisions of this world define the parameters of God's grace. We are the church of God. We are the remnant called to minister the gospel to the world. The world will always divide. It will always divide. Put four Baptists in a business meeting to decide what kind of light bulbs to put in the sanctuary. There will be seven opinions. The world will always divide. The gospel will always save. Whether you are Judah or Joseph, you need Christ. You join me in a word of prayer. Father, I have not lived as long as many of the folks in this room. But it seems like we live in a world that is just dividing and dividing and dividing so fast you can't keep track which side you're supposed to be on. There are divisions and hatred. There's opinion and attitude and, a, and, a, and an, an unwillingness to hear. And yet you call us to be the agents of your word. That our redemption is not just about fixing our problems, but being the, the solve, the, the message, the hope for those who are in trouble. That you save us not because we're in crisis, but because those around us are in crisis and they need to hear from you. May we be your hands and feet. May we be honest about the things that we divide against and open to your grace at work. May the elements of the table that we take that unify us, that unite us with you,
also remind us that you died for those who hated you. And may we see grace where others see division and see hope where others see hatred. Because we are called to be your people. And we speak to you in your name by your Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace forever. Go in peace, my brothers and sisters.